Well, last time we saw three parables. There was the parable of the, the wheat and the weeds, which spoke of this time of the father's patience. While the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one grow alongside one another and culminating in the final judgement when there was then that separation of the two. Then that that parable was followed by those two short illustrations of the nature of the kingdom. Well, this morning we see the same pattern but only in reverse. Uh, Two short parables about the nature of the kingdom and then followed by the parable of the fish and the fishermen. Uh, That parable, see how it stands parallel to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The good and bad fish corresponds to the wheat and the weeds. They're all together in the net for a time, but then comes the day of judgment and there will be that separation. Now Jesus connects these three parables with that word again. I don't know if you picked that up. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. And by doing so, he's actually putting these three together. He's indicating that they all have something in common to say about the kingdom of heaven. So, what is it? What is it that these three parables have in common? Well, it's that in each parable, the main characters, the man, the merchant, the fishermen, they all end up in possession of something valuable, a treasure in a field, a pearl, a catch of quality fish. So seeing that Jesus puts these three together and that they're they're in parallel to one another should actually cause us to read the first two parables maybe a little bit differently to the way that they've been popularly interpreted. I've only ever heard these two parables, the, the treasure and the pearl, interpreted in such a way that we are the man, we are the merchant, the treasure and the pearl is the kingdom and we're required to sell, to give up everything that we have in order to gain the kingdom. I don't think that's how we're supposed to read them. Now, there's no question that Jesus did call people to count the cost of discipleship. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It can sound like give up everything in order to gain the kingdom. But see, what Jesus is talking about here is not a condition 
for entering the kingdom. He's talking about the consequences of being in the kingdom. In the present, being a citizen of the kingdom of God and therefore a foreigner in this world means the potential loss of everything we have in this world. And when Jesus comes in his kingdom, there will be a vindication. Everything that's been lost here will actually be repaid and more. But giving up everything isn't a condition for entering the kingdom. If it was, it would be salvation by works, salvation by self-sacrifice. Citizenship in the kingdom isn't a reward for our self-denial. We can't earn our place in the kingdom. It's by grace that the Father opens his doors and welcomes us in as children. What, What makes us think that everything that we own would be even a fraction of enough to purchase the kingdom? So I don't think these parables are about the cost of discipleship, or at least not about the cost to us. Approaching them in that way emphasises our actions and as we've seen in the last two weeks, the parables are first and foremost about the action of Christ, of the Son of Man, the King in his kingdom. They're pictures of how he goes about exercising his authority in his kingdom. And we see that in the parable of the fish. He's not specifically mentioned, but he's implied. He is the owner of the fishing boat. And his servants, the angels, they do the work of making sure the good fish, the sons of the kingdom, are separated out and kept. So we need to look at the other two parables in the same way. And when we do, we see that they are magnificent pictures of the Gospel. Who is the man who finds the treasure and the merchant who finds the pearl? It's Jesus. So what then is the treasure and the pearl? Well, it's not a lot. It's not the kingdom. It's us. The Son of Man has come and sought us out. And when he finds us, see what he does in order to gain us. He goes and sells all he has in order to purchase us. Paul told the Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He told the Philippians, Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Peter told his readers, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things 
such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The image of ransom there comes from the slave market of Rome, where people were sold into slavery. Most of them actually had sold themselves into slavery to pay off a huge debt. The only way they could pay that debt was to pay it with their whole selves and their whole lives and so they would work for their whole lives to pay off this debt. But if someone came along and said to them, I'll pay your debt for you, then that person was freed. Sometimes I might come to a relative of mine who was in slavery and say, well, I actually don't have the money to pay off your debt, but what I can do for you is I can take your place. I can take upon your position of slavery so that you can go free. And there's a few instances uh, historically we know that was actually what people did. When Christ ransomed us from our futile ways, he came and he stepped into our place. He gave all of himself, all that he owned, he gave in order to purchase us. See the great love with which he's loved us. I think we can be tempted to trivialise the work of salvation because we think it was trivial for God to do it. After all, he is God. His resources are infinite. So what's three days of suffering on a cross when you are eternal? Well, salvation is far from trivial. Its significance goes right back to creation, God's purpose for creating the universe. Why did he do it? Why did he create the world? Was it because he was bored? Was it just something that he did on the side while he's also focusing on other more important things? Colossians 1.16 tells us that all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, were created by him, that's Christ, through him and for him. The universe, the creation, is the Father's gift to his only begotten beloved Son. And the Father's plan is that the Son would be honoured and glorified as his image bearers lead all of creation in spirit-filled worship of the Son. Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century theologian. He expressed it in this way, and it's, uh, it's there in your newsletters. The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love and grace that was in his heart and that in this way God might be glorified. Condescension there in Edward's time didn't have the negative connotations that we, um, we it has today when we say someone is condescending. It simply means 
he from his lofty position was willing to come down and humble himself to where we are. So the creation of the universe is no trivial thing. It is so that God may be glorified. You exist, I exist, so that God may be glorified. But not just with our creation, but also our salvation. It was planned from before the foundation of the world, ultimately also with the goal that God will be glorified. The Father is infinitely wise and powerful. He could have come up with any number of ways to pour out honour and love upon his Son. And we can't even begin to imagine what those ways would be. But what we do know is that he chose to do it through this deliberately planned creation, redemption and glorification of human beings so that we too may be the object of his great love, that we may participate in that love of Father, Son and Spirit. So this outpouring of love meant that God has done what to our limited understanding sounds like a series of paradoxes. The eternal creator becomes one of his creatures. The author of life gives up his life to die on a cross. The father hides his face from his beloved son at the cross. The holy, sinless one becomes sin and becomes a curse for us. And for the rest of eternity, the Son, the eternal Son, sits in human flesh at the right hand of the Father. He bears in his human flesh the scars that provide the basis for the grace that he's shown to us and in which we stand. He will never cease to be our great High Priest, our Advocate, the Lamb that was slain. For some reason, when we were singing our opening hymn, we skipped verse 2. I have to check the computer to make sure it's got verse 2 of that hymn, which says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. "'Tis mercy all. Let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. See the great love with which he's loved us. The Son of Man gave his all in love to purchase us so that we might be his treasured possession. What is it about a treasure or a pearl that makes it valuable? Those things only have worth because of the value that's placed on them by people. While it's buried in the ground, the treasure is just stones and metal. While still in the oyster, the pearl is just a lump of calcium carbonate. I was going to say oyster saliva, but it's not. 
but they have no intrinsic value. No more value really intrinsically than anything else in creation. They're only valuable because we see them as valuable. Well similarly our value isn't an intrinsic value. It's bestowed on us by God's grace. He hasn't set his love on us because we deserve it. Christ didn't die for us because we're worth it. If there was anything about us that deserved God's love, then he would have had to save us out of obligation. Now you may hear that and say, yes, but what about the image of God? Doesn't being created in God's image mean we have some kind of intrinsic value? Doesn't it make human life sacred? Doesn't it give us a certain number of inalienable human rights? Well, firstly, it's it's important to see that the, the few occasions that the Bible speaks of human beings being in the image of God, it speaks not in terms of human rights, but in terms of human responsibility. In other words, the fact that, the, that human beings are made of, in the image of God doesn't mean that I have permission to stand up for my rights, but that I have a duty to stand up for others. It's in loving my neighbour that I also love the Lord my God because by honouring my neighbour, I'm ultimately honouring God whose image they bear. A number of social scientists and commentators are recognising that our culture is rapidly losing that sense of human social responsibility as it gives way to the idea of individual rights and entitlements. And uh, those those researchers who are Christians are recognising that the Judeo-Christian influence on Western culture uh, is declining um, and what's happening is that we are wanting the, the benefits of God's presence but without God himself. So we want to hang on to the idea of respect for each individual person which comes from this uniquely biblical idea of being a divine image bearer and in the biblical framework what that means outworking is I love my neighbour as myself. I'm more concerned about my, the, the rights, the, uh, the needs of others rather than standing up for my rights and needs. But we've jettisoned God from the equation and so very quickly our sinful human nature puts a twist on it and makes that image of God idea to be a selfish pursuit of our own glory rather than obeying God's commands to love the other. But also whatever value the image of God gives to a human being we've actually forfeited any right to claim it for ourselves because of our sinful rebellion. We've exchanged the glory of God for idols and images of things in the creation. So 
Who are we then to claim any right to worth or to glory when we've sought to deface God's worth and God's glory? But see the great love with which he's loved us. The Son of God sought us and found us when we had no worth, when we had no worthiness and he has placed upon us by grace such great value that we are now called children of God. We are sons and heirs. We are beloved and precious and treasured. This is a glorious freedom that we may live in, in Christ. To know salvation isn't just a mere ticket to get into heaven, but it's being taken from the garbage heap and placed at the centre of the Father's affections in Christ. When we know this great love and approval from the Father, then we're set free from our insatiable urge to earn love and to seek love and approval from anyone else. There's a, a catch cry at the end of a popular American reality TV show. They always close the show with this statement, if you don't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Nothing could be further from the truth. Yet this is the catch cry of today's world, isn't it? The true cry is if you don't know the love of the Father for you in Jesus Christ, how in the hell are you going to love anybody else? Without the security of God's free, unmerited, unconditional love as expressed in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we'll remain on this endless quest to love ourselves and to try and make other people love us. So Jesus doesn't say you must sell everything to make yourself worthy of the kingdom of God. Instead he says you may come freely into the kingdom of God because I have sold everything I have to make you my own. Well our passage concludes with one more short parable. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is old, what is new, and what is old. Now, Jesus has just asked, Have you understood all these things? Meaning, this whole series of parables in chapter 13. This word understood is the same word that's used repeatedly through this chapter in reference to those who respond with true faith to the word of the gospel. And the disciples have made it, uh, have had it made very clear to them they can only understand the mysteries of heaven, the gospel, because it's been given to them by God. And this parable illustrates that. See, the master of this household is wealthy. He has both old and new treasure in his storehouse. He's got treasure that's been recently received 
as well as that which, because he's wealthy, he's been able to store up and to save. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven aren't a bit of useful and interesting information. They're not the bare minimum that we need to know to make sure that we uh, gain entry into the kingdom. They are the deep riches of God himself. In his revelation of himself to us, God has opened up his very mind, his very heart to us. He's enabled us as his sons and daughters to see and wonder things that Peter says, things into which angels long to look. That's where Wesley got the line from that hymn. There's another uh, quotation that's there in your newsletters from Carl Henry. It's a, a longer quotation, but I want to read it because uh, it's just a. It, it's it's from a five-volume set of books called Authority, uh, God, Revelation, and Authority. So it's an academic work, but as as you read it, if you've got the time to read it, you see for him it wasn't just academics. This was a living thing for him. He says, divine revelation palpitates with human surprise. Like a fiery bolt of lightning that unexpectedly zooms towards us and scores a direct hit. Like an earthquake that suddenly shakes and engulfs us. It somersaults our private thoughts to abrupt awareness of ultimate destiny. By the unannounced intrusion of its omnipotent actuality, divine revelation lifts the present into the eternal and unmasks our pretensions of human omnicompetence, believing that we can do everything as if an invisible concord had burst the sound barrier overhead, it drives us to ponder whether the other world has finally pinned us to the ground for a life and death response, confronting us with a sense of cosmic arrest. It makes us ask whether the end of our world is at hand and propels us unasked before the judge and lord of the universe. Like some piercing air raid siren, it sends us scurrying from life's preoccupations and warns us that no escape remains if we neglect the only sure sanctuary. Even once for all revelation that has occurred in another time and place fills us with awe and wonder through its ongoing significance and bears the character almost of a fresh miracle. I think the, uh, the picture also of the new and old treasures is not just a reference to the wealth of this master of the household, but it's a reference to the fact that in Christ God has done a new thing, but it's built on the foundation of the old. He's established a new covenant in his blood and it was prefigured in the old covenant temple and sacrifices. He's given us the new commandment to love one another as he has loved us and in that new commandment he himself has fulfilled it and 
displayed it and we're called to obey it, not by some burdensome obligation to the law but in the freedom of grace. But uh, we're told in 1 John that this new commandment is also an old commandment. It's the same commandment that's been in place ever since the beginning. All that we have which is new in Christ is built on the foundation of the old. The character of God himself displayed in the law, the accounts of his mighty works and wonders throughout history, all that we called, what we call the Old Testament, that which Jesus came not to abolish but to fulfil. We saw that new and old dynamic in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus didn't teach anything that was technically different from the covenant that was given 1,500 years earlier through Moses, yet it had a newness and a vitality about it because it was taught by the same Lord himself who gave it at Sinai and he's now come in the flesh to fulfil it. So Jesus says that a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven has all the riches of the old and the new, the riches of God himself. They can see how the two, the old and the new, how they fit together in this one beautiful united work of God, sovereignly outworking his plan of salvation. This is the only place that this title scribe is used to refer to Jesus' disciples. Every other time it refers to the scribes who in partnership with the Pharisees were opposing Jesus. But a scribe had a a very important, a crucial job in Israel. Their primary task was to copy the scriptures accurately, meticulously, to ensure that Israel always had access to the word of God. They had to be highly skilled, they had to be highly literate, they had to be committed to the authority of the scriptures as God's living word. And so because of that role they had also become the primary teachers of the scriptures because they knew the text so well. If you're a scribe over your lifetime you probably would have memorised the entire scriptures because you'd written them out so many times. They were God's gift to Israel. It was because of their faithful work over the centuries that Jesus was able to say, it is written, and he knew that people would know what he was talking about. So this use of scribe is no accident. How do we know today what Jesus did and said. How can we know him today? Well, it's because his disciples, who were scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven, they wrote down what they were eyewitnesses to. They were trained by Jesus for the kingdom of heaven and the Spirit enabled them to be those faithful scribes who would make sure that the word of God would continue even up to this generation. And as the Holy Spirit enables us to read and to understand the scriptures, 
we too have this wonderful wealth of God himself and his gospel at our fingertips. So two glorious truths we've seen this morning which we as a church, as God's people, can stand on and live in. Firstly, in Christ we are God's treasured possession. We're bought with the blood of Christ. We're seated at the Father's right hand. We're sanctified and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're justified by his grace and able to walk with our heads held high as we rest in the Father's great love. And secondly, to us, his treasured possession, he has entrusted the treasure of the Gospel, the revelation of the mysteries of the Kingdom of Heaven, a Gospel that gives life, that gives freedom to all who hear it and who believe it. It's a Gospel that we're called to both guard with our lives, being willing to suffer and even die for, and it's a Gospel that we're called to hold out boldly and with great joy to those around us. Let's pray. Father, we worship you for the great love with which you've loved us in Jesus Christ. That he has come and sought us out, that he has given his all in order to purchase us and make us your sons and your daughters, your treasured possession. Father, we ask that by your grace we might never lose sight of this great love for us, that we might never forget the the depths of our sin, our unworthiness from which you have saved us, but all the more the heights and the width and the breadth of your love to us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to conclude uh, with the song, uh, The Lord is My Salvation. Uh, This song speaks of this uh, great act of God's grace in uh, seeking us and finding us and rescuing us. Let's stand and sing. Mm -hmm.